the cost to humans that regulations entail is rarely, if ever, part of the analysis that's passed along to Congress. That's what we want to focus on. There is a human cost to regulation, even to the compliance that businesses have to do with regulation that gets passed on to consumers. The regressive effects portion of this is there's a growing body of research showing that as regulations build up over time, as regulations accumulate, there are increasingly regressive effects from that accumulation of regulation. Regressive meaning having a disproportionate impact, disproportionate harm in this case, on low-income households, low-income individuals. My name is Karen Zarnecki, and I'm Vice President of Outreach at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. I'd like to thank you for joining us today for a practical discussion on regulations and inequality, how government overreach hurts the poor. This is essentially going to be a moderated discussion about the regressive impact of regulatory accumulation. Now, we all realize regulations are important safeguards that help us set standards of product safety, environmental quality, and ethical business practices. We value the importance of clean air, clean water, safe products, and safe working conditions. But a growing body of research suggests that the accumulation of rules we use to advance these standards is hurting the poorest and most vulnerable among us. From increased poverty and income inequality to decreased entrepreneurialism and upward mobility, the accumulation of regulations is inflicting considerable harm on working families, and it's important that policymakers are aware of the consequences and potential solutions. We are very fortunate today to have three uh, folks with us to discuss their research on this topic and help put a human face on the cost of overly burdensome regulations. The first speaker today is going to be Patrick McLaughlin, who is a senior research fellow and director of policy analytics at the Mercatus Center. His research focuses primarily on regulations, including reg data and the QuantGov projects that deploy cutting edge machine learning techniques to quantify the size and scope of federal and state regulations. Our second speaker will be Dustin Chambers, who's a senior affiliated scholar with Mercatus and a professor of economics in the Purdue School of Business at Salisbury University. Professor Chambers has studied the topic of income inequality, poverty and economic growth, and his most recent work explores the regressive impacts of regulation. And our third speaker today is Colin O'Reilly, Assistant Professor of Economics in the Hyder School of Business at Creighton University. His research focuses on institutions, development, and economic growth. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us today. All right, now, Patrick, I'm going to start the conversation with you, if I may. Uh, before we get into the deeper dive of the research and what the findings are, I would like to ask you to give us a top-line view of what we mean by regressive effects and why policymakers should care about it. Sure. Well, I think there's a top-line view that people typically take to regulation that doesn't include regressive effects. So let me let me start there. If you're a member of Congress, what is your image of the of the size of the regulatory state? What is your image of the burden of regulations created by agencies over the decades that they've been around? It may come from the annual report to Congress that OMB puts together. Uh, in that you do see some numbers, whether you believe those numbers is a totally separate conversation, but there are some numbers on the costs and benefits of regulations that get reported to Congress. What do those numbers involve? Even if you assume that those numbers are right, what you're looking at is the cost to businesses. 
the cost for complying, for buying new machinery, for hiring new, new people to assure they're in compliance, new labor costs, those sorts of things. The cost to humans that regulations entail is rarely, if ever, part of the analysis that's passed along to Congress. So that's, that's what we want to focus on. There, there is a human cost to regulation, even to the compliance that businesses have to do with regulation that gets passed on to consumers. So the regressive effects portion of this is there's a growing body of research showing that as regulations build up over time, as regulations accumulate, there are increasingly regressive effects from that accumulation of regulation. Regressive meaning having a disproportionate impact, disproportionate harm in this case, on low-income households, low-income individuals. Colin and Dustin, who are here with me today, have, have really been leading the charge on a lot of this research, taking numbers that we have about how much regulation there is and seeing how that can have regressive effects. And so that's going back to what your, your question, Karen. That's the top line that we want to focus on here. We want to focus on not what are just the business costs of regulation, not what does it do to the traditional things that you think about, which they're all relevant, right? Regulation does harm economic growth. It does does slow down business formation. Those are really important things, but there's a whole separate aspect, a whole separate ledger of cost, human cost to regulation that we want to focus on. I think that's really important you've mentioned. It, it is an aspect that no one really has discussed at how it hurts uh, poor individuals. So Colin, uh, you, and, uh, you are one of the uh, key uh, authors of the most recent study, and you have found that a 10% increase in federal regulation leads to a 0.5% increase in income inequality. Okay, based on your research, what does that really mean? Is it making the poor poorer? Does it make the rich richer? Is it a combination of both? How do you explain this to the common man? Yeah, I mean, inequality is a, a hot topic these days, right? We hear a lot about the 1%, right? And and there's no question that, that the, the regulations do uh, affect the high end of the distribution that makes the rich richer, but it's also going to make the poor poorer, right? And so you really got this pressure on both sides. Um, you know, you can think about uh, just as an example, we, we see all the regulations in, in the finance industry, you know, many of them well-meaning after the, the financial crisis, right? Uh, but big banks helped write those rules, right? They wrote them so that it would limit the competition, that the compliance costs would be high, right? And that, of course, allows those banks to, to, to reap more profits and help the 1% or, or folks at the high end of the distribution. But we often forget about what that does to the low end of the distribution in finance and in other industries. If you've got fewer community banks, that's fewer loans to someone looking for a personal loan, someone looking to start a business, uh, higher interest rates that they're going to have to pay. Um, on top of that, regulations in general are going to make it harder to get a job, right? It's going to increase the cost of hiring going to increase the barriers for folks to, to access employment. And of course, if you can't get the jobs, right, that's going to increase poverty, which Dustin's going to, going to get into in a little bit more detail. And so you increase the amount of poverty, you're going to raise income inequality as well. So it really hits both sides of the, the income distribution. And, you know, for some of the states represented here today, that, that's a pretty significant increase in income inequality, uh, some, somewhere in the neighborhood of two to even up to 5% in, in uh, Louisiana. Um, and in Indiana, pretty big increase, 5% increase in inequality over, over uh, 15 years. And you have the data to back it up on a state-by-state -state basis for a number of these states, correct? 
Exactly. Yeah, we've done calculations that, that look at how those federal regulations are going to disproportionately affect different states. And we're able to, to calculate what that means in terms of, of how much that's exacerbated income inequality. Uh, and, and by tying some of these, using these machine learning methods that, that Patrick just mentioned, right, we can tie that to the states and, and really see how, how this disproportionately affects uh, uh, folks of low income and, and increases income inequality. Okay, I'm going to bring Dustin into the conversation. Dustin, we've just talked about income inequality, and I do want to talk about poverty rates. You found that a 10% increase in regulation leads to a 2.5 increase in poverty rates. Now, this is a very important statistic that no one has, uh, has talked about before now, and can you explain your finding and how you came to that? Sure, absolutely. Um, I mean, really, that finding is the economics profession coming full circle in the course of two centuries. If you look back in the, the 19th century, a lot of economists were very concerned with regulations. Uh, they understood even back then that they have uh, negative impacts on businesses, and, and that doesn't really stretch the imagination that it is expensive to, to comply with regs. But also there was a real focus on the extent to which regulations and government rules interfered with individual rights and liberties and how it abridged those freedoms. So there was a lot of concern from philosophers and economists about that topic. As we move into the 20th century, about the time of the Great Depression, economists collectively got amnesia and really uh, framed regulation as kind of a cure-all to all so-called market failures. And so the economics profession for a while really looked very uh, positively on regulation, with the notable exception of the, the Austrian school led by people like Ludwig von Mises and, and Friedrich Hayek. Then in the 1960s and 70s, things really began to change. There was uh, a recognition that regulations can have all sorts of uh, unintended consequences and that these knock-on effects uh, probably would end up impacting people just beyond entrepreneurs. I mean, since, I mean, the, the logic's pretty straightforward. If you're uh, hindering the ability of entrepreneurs to innovate, create new products, hire people, it's certainly going to impact the people who then never get a job uh, or who never have access to those products or have fewer economic opportunities. So economists understood this uh, in the 60s and 70s. There was a, a recognition of this, but there was really no way to measure it. So that was kind of the, the big conundrum. Research progressed. A lot of uh, measures like total pages in the uh, CFR and other kind of um, uh, indirect metrics were used to try to get a handle on how large regulations were. But the, the profession really was stuck. And uh, Patrick McLaughlin, who is on this call with us, really uh, had a major breakthrough in that uh, he created a data set that actually tells us how many regulations impact specific industries. So I can't emphasize how much of a game changer that has been. And so once we had that kind of information, we could then address the questions like you raised, Karen, uh, about how regulations impact the poor. Um, so getting back to that question specifically, uh, Patrick and his team developed something called the uh, phrase index. So once they had cleared the tough intellectual hurdle of matching regulations to industries, they went one step further and asked, well, how burdensome are federal regulations at the state level? 
Um, some states have a, a mix of industries that aren't terribly uh, regulated, more service-oriented industries like California, think about like software development. But then Gulf states like Louisiana and Texas have lots of natural gas and oil extraction. So, you know, any of those commodity extraction industries tend to be very heavily regulated at the federal level. So what they did was they uh, took all of this uh, body of regulation and then they weighted those regulations based on how uh, prominent those industries were in any given state. And then using that weighting scheme, they basically added them up and developed an, an industry metric of how burdensome federal regulations are at the, the state level. And so then what I was able to do is take that data and then match it up with poverty rates from the federal government and look at whether or not there were any systematic patterns in the poverty rates that corresponded to differences in regulatory burdens in states over time. And what we found that, yes, in fact, there is a statistically significant, that means uh, that it's beyond just chance alone, that there's a strong evidence of a, uh, of a correlation between the two, uh, specifically a 10% increase in regulatory burden at the state level is associated with about a 2.5% increase in poverty rates in states. And we ran a battery of tests to see that that was a robust result, and it consistently came out as a robust result. And so we have some data at the state level that we're working on. It hasn't been released yet, but just to kind of give the audience a, a sense of how big these numbers are. So if we look at the state of Texas uh, in 2018, uh, federal regulations, we estimate, are responsible for an additional 489,000 people living in poverty in the, uh, the Lone Star State. If we look at Florida, it's a little over 300,000 people. In Georgia, a bit over 200,000 people. In Pennsylvania, a bit over 150,000 people. Minnesota, a very high income state, still nearly 65,000 additional people living in poverty. And then finally, Iowa, almost 50,000. So, you know, this is more than just an academic exercise. These are, you know, real families and real people who are hurting. I'm happy to at least see that we have the tools now to measure this and hopefully hold policymakers accountable for these, these unintended consequences. All right, Justin, I want to continue with you, if I may. Your research has also demonstrated that the accumulation of regulation has caused an increase in consumer prices. It seems obvious to me, but... Um, this really hurts the poor and not just all of us. It really hurts them disproportionately. Can you explain this concept as well? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, actually, that was the first topic that I was involved with, uh, with the Mercatus Center, uh, trying to connect Patrick's data on um, regulations at the industry level uh, together with uh, prices uh, in various industries. So um, we didn't use phrase data here, which I talked about a few minutes ago. That was uh, regulations at the state level. Instead, we used reg data. So that's uh, regulation data at the industry level. And we connected that together with the consumer spending patterns from the, uh, the CES, the Consumer Expenditure Survey. Uh, and we were able to construct uh, baskets that corresponded to different income groups. So we looked at these spending patterns of the poorest households compared to spending patterns of higher income households. 
And we asked really two questions. One, does an increase in regulation tend to raise consumer prices? And of course, our prior belief was that, yeah, that probably should be the case. Uh, Regulations are expensive to comply with. That those costs get passed on to the consumers in the form of higher prices. Uh, And we were able to verify that. Uh, We found that a 10% increase in regulations leads to about a 1% increase in consumer prices. And if you look at that over a long period of time, that really compounds. It seems small, but it is a a significant result. But perhaps more disturbingly, we found that uh, the poorest households uh, tended to face the greatest rates of inflation. So the uh, the bottom 20% of income earners faced an average inflation rate of about 2.46% compared to the top income group, which faced a little bit over a 2% rate of inflation. And the reason for this difference is that the the poor uh, consume a disproportionate number of goods and services that tend to be very heavily regulated. So uh, folks will claim that they're promulgating regulations to help the poor, but oftentimes that attempt to help them backfires because it ends up increasing the cost of living for low-income individuals. And it doesn't have as large of a proportionate effect on uh, higher-income earners. Mm, okay, very interesting. Now, Colin, in your work, you document interesting links between an increase in regulation and a decrease in the number of small businesses. Can you explain this relationship of what it means for regular people and how families and entrepreneurs would benefit from sm- from a smarter regulatory framework? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the way that I kind of frame it is, is that we've got barriers in adaptability and to think about it that way, right? That, that what regulations wind up doing often is, is that they create a barrier. And that's a barrier both on the business side for entrepreneurs, right? But that's also a barrier for just your average person trying to find a job, right? And when I say a barrier, really, it means just just somehow increasing the cost of doing uh, whatever it is you're trying to do. So um, if we're talking about on the business side here, right, excessive regulations are going to make it more expensive to hire workers, right? These compliance costs are, are not trivial. And then on the, on the individual side, it's going to make it more expensive for you to apply for a job or to be qualified to apply for a job, right? We think about certain types of licensing and things like that. And so you've got the barriers raising on both sides of the equation here. And that just means that you're going to have a harder time finding matches for people, right? Harder to mm-hmm. fewer job openings, right? Uh, more costly to apply for those jobs. And we see that in the data. Uh, research uh, uh, has shown here using some of the methods that, that Dustin was just describing that we can tie those federal regulations down to the state level um, and, and see what that means in terms of, all right, how many firms uh, are, are effectively lost uh, because of this, how many jobs are effectively lost in each state because of this? And, and the numbers are striking, right? We, we can look at, at uh, you know, jobs in the thousands, right? Thousands of jobs in a state being lost just because of these regulatory costs. And I think that, that when you, when you tr- try to put some numbers to that, it really is kind of striking. You think about, you know, constituents uh, uh, calling in and saying, hey, you know, this is, this is my, my entrepreneurial idea. I would have liked to add someone else to my firm. Uh, pick up one of those people that just got laid off from the pandemic, um, and they can't do that, right? And so I think that's that that's the adaptability. And I'm sure I'm sure you've all had some personal experience with this over the last six months, watching some of your uh, constituents adjust and adapt to whether it's remote uh, uh, or or slightly distance do it, completing of their jobs, 
uh, or pivoting uh, in terms of the services that they provide. Uh, but those uh, that adaptation is only available if you don't have the barriers. I think about, I grew up in Massachusetts, uh, a lot more regulations than, than in Nebraska, where I am now. Uh, the the bar, uh, bar down the street from me started doing takeout cocktails, right? They started to sell uh, a little bit of a market there. They you know, could pick up, I can pick up my half and half on the way uh, home from work for my coffee, right? And that was only available because the legislature removed some of the regulations or didn't have those regulations in the first place. And those things w- would have been illegal to do in many states across the country. So people can adapt, people can, can get that new job, but if we block those rules, uh, we start to see some of these totals here uh, in terms of how many jobs we, we would have lost, right? Texas, something around 10,000 jobs lost uh, just because of, of the limits on, on uh, entrepreneurship. Wow. Great. Colin, you get the first question that's come in. Early in the program, you mentioned that regulations make the rich richer. Can you explain that relationship in greater detail? Yeah. Well, it, it sort of jumps right off of what I was saying about those barriers, I think. Right. So I think that that um, uh, it's going to affect the low end of the distribution because it, it curtails that adaptability. It doesn't allow someone to get that job or pivot. But on the high end, it's about limiting competition, right? So, so industries or, or folks in a particular profession might want to lobby at, uh, for a particular regulation that puts up a barrier, that builds up a barrier. Might sound great, right? Might uh, often in the, in the name of health and safety uh, or in the name of environmental protection. And as, as you said at the outset, uh, Karen, that, that many of these, these rules are, are well-intended and, and can have some, some upsides, right? But if they accumulate, right, they become very costly and they, they raise that barrier to competition. And of course, if you eliminate your competition, right, you're essentially a, a monopoly, right? You can raise your prices, you can extract extra profits. Uh, and so that, that's how it's going to affect the high end of the distribution increasing inequality. Uh, and Dustin hit on some of the, some of the ways that it, it really kind of uh, hits the low end of the distribution. Okay, Patrick, I'm going to ask you a question. Most people would argue regulations keep our air and drinking water clean from pollutants. Do any of your papers call for eliminating those types of regulatory protections to help improve the economy? Or do we have to trade one bad policy for another? Um, Is there a better way forward? That's an interesting question. Real quickly before I address that, I do want to point the the listeners, the audience, to uh, some additional resources related to what Colin was just saying, if I may. Sure. Um, so it's barriers to entry is part of the the result. Uh, it, it is the result of the accumulation of regulation, and that leads to protection, right? Moats for incumbent businesses, which can make the rich get richer. Uh, we're not the only people looking into this. Uh, there's a professor at uh, New York University Stern School of Business, Thomas Philippon, who has a pretty famous book out right now, which goes all over the place. But one of the papers supporting his his book looks at what he calls the failure of free entry. Uh, he's he's noticed, as have a lot of economists, that industries have become more concentrated over the past several decades, meaning top-heavy. The the big players in those industries have become responsible for more of the sales in those industries. Uh, what explains this? Why is this happening? And the best explanation that he could come up with in this paper was the accumulation of regulation. So that's very consistent with what Colin was just saying. As there's more regulation, they become barriers to entry. They become protective of the incumbent big businesses and the rich get richer. Going to your question, Karen. Yes. 
You started off with saying many people believe that most regulations are protective of our, our water or the environment in general. That's actually a myth. Uh, really? Most, that's not what, yes. Um, I've got a paper out, we released it earlier this year with Casey Mulligan, where we look at three popular myths about regulation. And the very first one that we that we address is, is this. Uh, we've mentioned a few times on this that we have ways of quantifying how much regulation there is, the whole reg data project. So we can go and look how much regulation comes from the environmental regulators at the federal level versus all of the other regulators. And it's not the majority. Uh, it's somewhere between 20 and 28% of regulations come from environmental regulators themselves. If you want to push that up or down 10%, because maybe there's regulations that are envi environmental from other places, you can, but we're very confident that it's not what most regulations do. It's a good chunk of them, though, right? It is, it is a substantial portion of regulations. They are environmental. Uh, nothing we are suggesting requires a trade-off here, though. There's, okay. there's, it's not saying that if you want to fix one regulation or uh, make regulations better, uh, more adaptable, uh, to use Colin's phrasing here, that you have to get rid of regulations elsewhere or the protections that they offer. So let me give an example. Um, I used to work at the Department of Transportation, and DOT is pretty well known, at least in some modes, for, for putting out what's called very prescriptive regulations, design standards. They say specifically how you're supposed to make your, your car, uh, how you're supposed to design your train, as opposed to performance standards, which say you need to make your car so that it can do this. I don't care how you do it, but as long as it can withstand this impact and the people inside it or the crash test dummies inside it don't have a... a a secondary impact velocity above 10 miles per hour, whatever the performance may be, they could do it that way. So there was an old design standard related to headlights uh, in, the, in the 60s that was put in place that said that you have to have high beams and low beams and, and nothing in between. That's the goal of that is so that when you're driving along, you don't, the person who's driving the opposite direction doesn't get blinded blind by your high beams, right? That's why you have low beams. Uh, so that was required to be in all cars. Since that was put in place, the world moved on. They figured out how to make headlights that will combine high beams and low beams so that when the car that's coming at you, um, you know, you want to shine low beams or maybe even no beams at that person. There's headlights that can do that while simultaneously shining high beams everywhere else. So the pedestrian on the side of the road you can still see that person, right? Going back, tying this back to human costs, this, the, the fact that we don't have the ability to do this right now means that we probably have more accidents, more people die. Um, we still have that standard, at least as of a few years ago we did. It, it may have changed in very recent history, but we kept that in place for a long time. All we had to do to get rid of that was put up an alternative performance standard. Let's have a regulation that allows – you can still stick with high beams and low beams if you want to, but if you have another headlight system that does the same thing as what high beams and low beams are designed to do, which is not blind an oncoming driver while simultaneously increasing performance elsewhere, go for it. So creating a better regulation doesn't mean you have to have a, a better regulation in the sense of being more adaptable, more flexible, allowing better technology. That doesn't mean you have to trade off and lose the benefits that the regulations themselves are designed to create. Okay, very good. We've got another question that's come in here. What sort of barriers, regulations are you seeing in the rising gig economy? How does that affect low-income individuals 
and what financial downsides are attached to those regulations? That's a great question. Who would like that one? Well, I'll, I'll chime in a little bit. Um, okay. You know, I think that, that uh, you know, folks might have seen in the news, uh, you know, California's new um, rules uh, regarding ride sharing and, and whether folks have to be uh, classified as a, you know, employee or an independent contractor, right? Mm-hmm. We've already seen some of the unintended consequences of this, right? So the re- regulations directed at, at ride share but it's it's limiting photographers and, and and reporters and whatnot from doing freelance work, right? So we already see one cost there where it's going to be harder for some folks to get a job, right? I think that we're also going to start to see moving forward some additional types of health and safety regulations that are also going to try to throw a wrench into things like Uber um, and whatnot. And I'll, I'll I'll just sort of share an anecdote. Um, uh, I was teaching up in Wisconsin and uh, I didn't get the summer classes I was expecting to get. Uh, all of a sudden those disappeared. And so I had a little bit of extra time and, and less income. And so I drove for Uber for uh, about six months. Um, and I could do that in a matter of days. I could sign up. I you know got my car inspected and I was off to the, off the races, right? And um, I mean, that's again, that adaptability, right? We have unforeseen events hit us all the time, right? And people are really great about solving those problems themselves if they're able to. Um, and so I think that, that we have to be aware of some of those, all right, it, what are the upsides? What are the downsides of classifying folks as full-time employees for, versus independent contractors, right? What are some of the costs of maybe health and safety regulations uh, uh, limiting our ability to do that? Um, and so it's worth thinking about those costs of the regulations. We often hear about the benefits. Okay. So I think that does address part of the question, which is how does it affect low-income individuals? The fact that you were able to start driving in a number of days means low-income individuals don't have to apply for um, a license and they don't have to go through uh, weeks or costly endeavors to be able to do that. So I think that is a benefit. I have another question here. What can Congress do to improve the regulatory environment? Is this more of an executive or a legislative problem? I'll jump in on that. Um, It's both, but... It's a problem of process. Uh, I, I think, in that sense, it's it is if you want a long-term solution, it is legislative. Uh, the The regulatory process at the federal level was created by the Administrative Procedure Act, which is almost eighty years old now, mm-hmm. and it's its design needs some updating. Um, one of the main failures of the regulatory process right now is the failure to look back at old regulations, see if they're working, see if they're delivering the benefits we wanted, uh, see if they're delivering benefits at a reasonable cost. There's all sorts of additional questions I could throw on there that can go into a retrospective review of regulations. But you know, this whole conversation has been about how regulatory accumulation, the buildup of regulations over time has all sorts of unintended consequences, especially right. on low-income households and individuals. Well, that's because we had a buildup of regulations in the first place. Do we need all those regulations? The, so the a solution, a process solution, which would lead to going back and cutting back regulations you don't need anymore or ones that are ineffective or making them better adaptable to new technologies and that sort of thing, that that I think does require, if, if you want a long-term solution, it does require congressional action. Uh, on the executive side, there's a lot that can be done. President Trump, the Trump administration has tried to do a lot to cut back on old regulations, to force agencies to look back at old rules and see if they need them anymore. Uh, they've implemented a form of regulatory budgeting, uh, the the one in, two out. It's called for shorthand, implemented by executive order. But, you know, does that maintain in the long run uh, that 
it's an executive order, right? So uh, if, if there's a different president, it's, it's questionable whether it will maintain in the long run. And uh, budgets are great. Regulatory budgets, by the way, just a little side note, they're the most effective tools that I've seen in all my research for managing regulation. We've seen this in uh, at the state level, and we've seen this in some provinces in Canada. We've seen this in some other countries at their, at their national level as well. When government gets serious about regulation and regulatory accumulation, the only thing that I've seen work for, for both maintaining current levels as opposed to constant accumulation or even cutting back to a lower level is regulatory budgeting. One and two out is a form of that. Uh, so that's a, a quick side note there. Congress could address regulations that way. There's a lot of other things Congress could be doing. I've got a uh, proposal out with a couple of colleagues called the Fresh Start Initiative. Can I go, go into that now, Karen? This, this, this sure. Kind of I was going to talk about British Columbia, but you, tell us what the Fresh Start Initiative is. Sure. The, so the Fresh Start Initiative is uh, also a proposal for ideally legislative action, although it could be executive as well. Uh, so basically, my colleagues Adam Thier and Matt Mitchell and I were looking at the fact that governments everywhere, the national, you know, the federal government, uh, state level governments, other countries' governments have had to somehow cut back on existing regulations, either modify them temporarily or suspend them temporarily or say we're not going to enforce them uh, in some way in order to allow uh, adaptation during the pandemic. Uh, so Colin touched on a few of these things at the local level, uh, allowing delivery of, of alcoholic beverages. That's, that sort of thing is one one way in which regulations have, have changed to allow business to go on in some shape or form. At the federal level, telehealth, telemedicine was not permissible because of existing regulations from HHS. Those had to be suspended. And now it's a serious industry. I don't think that goes away, hopefully. Um, but so we were looking around and noticing that at the federal level, something like 800 regulations have had to be modified or suspended in a lot of states, uh, 100, 200. We don't have an exact count for most states, but we have some for some states. Hundreds of regulations have had to be modified or suspended. And this is uh, perhaps an opportunity. Uh, this is it. Let's call it an experiment with, that has shown a light on the regulations that, that clearly have some sort of negative impact when we need to be adaptable, when we need to be able to develop or implement new technologies. These were on the books, and maybe they didn't need to be. And this really brings into question whether they should have been there in the first place. Is this something that needed to be on the books prior to a pandemic, and then all of a sudden we had to get rid of them or modify them? Or were they lurking there and just weren't highlighted because we didn't have the need to pivot or or adapt because uh, we didn't have pandemic for a long time. Um, so we we took a look at that fact and we said let's let's propose a solution here because what happens when the pandemic inevitably does subside? Those regulations do they go back on the books as they used to be? Do the suspensions just go away? The temporary modifications just go away? We would prefer to see something a little bit more deliberative. We would prefer to see. Uh, a, a set of experts. In fact, our specific proposal is let's put together a commission that uh, consists of independent academic experts, uh, 6, 12, whatever, pick a number, that are going to look at all those regulations that were suspended or modified and say for every single one of them, 
what do we need to do for the long run? Do we get rid of this thing entirely because it wasn't leading to any benefits? Do we keep some parts of it because parts of it were beneficial, but other parts were bad? Uh, do we need to just modify it in some way so that we can get, keep all the benefits from it, but stave off some of the some of the costs, like the headlight regulation I was talking about earlier? Just modify it, you still get the benefits. Um, what was this model after? Reports. You said a commission, but I know you modeled it after something. Yeah, it's it modeled after the the base realignment and closure, closure commissions. commissions. Uh, so that yeah, the BRAC commissions, and so those, that's more. It's an example of successful reform that we've seen at the federal level, uh, where Congress couldn't ever decide. And there's a lot of dynamics here, but Congress could never come to the point of deciding which military bases needed to be closed. Obviously, some needed to be closed. At least Department of Defense was saying some needed to be closed. They no longer created any strategic value because the Cold War had ended, uh, other other threats from earlier eras, including the threat of invasion from Mexico, uh, had had long since gone away, but we still had some military bases in place. Uh, Congress was never able to shut down the funding for any of those individual bases, despite, despite Department of Defense's request to do so. So the solution was Congress created this, this BRAC commission. And so it was just the same sort of logic. Let's put together some, a commission, independent experts, have them tell us which of these bases aren't, aren't creating any strategic value and therefore, which ones we can close. Congress gets that report, and this goes back to the same thing for the regulation report. Congress gets that report about regulations and what to do for every regulation, and this does a simple up or down vote on the whole thing. You don't get to modify it. You don't get to pick and choose which ones you like or don't. Just a simple up or down vote. All these bases are closed, or all these regulations are modified in the way that the commission says. And there, in one fell swoop, you've dealt with, at the federal level, 800 regulations in the long run. That would be. I'm gonna. I'm gonna ask you. It's not the perfect solution, but it's a lot. Go ahead. Um, somebody likes your idea and wants to know if this has already been proposed as legislation. Uh, yeah, there there is a bill, uh, both in the House and the Senate. Uh, what's it called? Pandemic preparedness. Uh, something. Uh, there's. We, we can follow up in our follow up course. People know what it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but there's there's a bill that that basically implements this. Okay. Right. And we've seen it at a state level, too, um, from the executive. But you do the same sort of concept without legislation necessarily being involved. Uh, we saw the governor of Idaho modify this idea and implement that for the executive uh, regulatory agencies within that state as well. Yeah, that got rid of a lot of it. Dustin, I want to ask you, um, Patrick referenced Canada and um, somehow the provinces up there, how they've dealt with it. Um, British Columbia had a long experiment with the red tape reduction effort, and they're they're not a conservative bastion. It's a very progressive uh, jurisdiction. Can you share with us some of the benefits they've seen um, and the work they did to really make it happen? Yeah, no, it's great, and it, it dovetails nicely with what uh, Patrick was talking about. Uh, it was, you know, a legislative effort, uh, you know, proposed, of course, by the executive. Uh, and I agree with Patrick 100%. I, for, if you want durable uh, mechanism, a durable change where you're going to eliminate regs in large numbers and keep them gone, it, it, executive orders or uh, top-down executive uh, initiatives aren't going to work. Uh, they're just not the, broad enough in scope. So what the... Um, what happened in British Columbia in the late 90s, their economy had totally stagnated and the liberal government was kicked out and a conservative government came in and they did a lot of things, including t- cutting taxes. But um, one of the headline initiatives 
was to reduce regulations. So they ran on a platform of reducing regs by 30%. And so they were able to achieve that. They were elected. And in fact, within five years, they had cut half of all the regulations in uh, British Columbia. And um, I had uh, watched a discussion with the former, basically governor of British Columbia. And he said, one of the one of the things that made that work and made that a lasting change was that they were successful in changing the culture of the regulators in British Columbia. It, it changed from being um, a place where if you saw a problem, you would just create a regulation, kind of like a modern U.S. medicine. There's a pill for every ill. Uh, in British Columbia, whenever there was a problem, just write a reg. That was the mentality. And so they created this kind of modified uh, budget, uh, regulatory budgeting system where there's an initial drawdown or cutting of regulations and then a, a two-in, one-out system for a, a long period of time. And so what that did was it constrained the regulators. Um, they then had a mentality of maintaining a regulatory portfolio. So the idea is that they had fewer degrees of freedom. There were only so many rules that they could promulgate. And so it forced them to reevaluate all of the regulations that were on the books, not only in the process of cutting the initial 30 and then 50%, but also in terms of freeing up space within the regulatory code, within that administrative law code, to promulgate new rules in the future. So uh, they had this mentality of where you had to constantly reevaluate all of the rules that are on the books and see what works and what doesn't work. So it's a very dynamic kind of system. It wasn't kind of this uh, system we have like in the U.S. where we write a rule and just forget about it. It's there for a century. They, they're constantly reevaluating the rules that were there. And they had dramatic effects. Uh, they went from being one of the slowest growing provinces to the quickest growing province. Many other provinces copied their, their lead, adopted similar models, and even the federal government of Canada adopted. It was a watered-down version of this system but it was overall very, very successful. So I think that if you want to actually have long-term success, you have to change the culture in D.C., a really hard thing to do. But I think you will need new legislation that effectively re uh, reduces the degrees of freedom, ties the hands of regulators, and limits how much regulating they can do. And to follow on one of Patrick's other points is, you know, a regulation isn't just a regulation. You know, they're not all the same. You can have uh, a good regulation, a well-designed regulation, like Patrick was talking about headlights, versus a, a poorly designed regulation. Mm -hmm. um, if you tend to have very prescriptive, top-down, central planning type regulations, and British Columbia had a lot of this in their forestry industry, literally volumes of rules that loggers had to follow. They even regulated what kind of nails they had to use when building bridges to access sites. It was, it was nuts. Um, and so what they did is they actually raised the bar in terms of uh, health and welfare and worker safety, but they did it with a thinner set of rules that were more geared toward outcomes versus processes. And so they were able to have better safety while having fewer actual rules on the books by having smarter regulations. Unless you compel the agencies to undergo that process, though, you're not going to, to get that. In All right. I think the whole concept, when they became regulation managers and they had a portfolio and took pride in their work, it really made things go, um, it wasn't the heavy hand of government. It was uh, it was their work and it was their job to make sure they were the best regulations. Well, gentlemen, we have come to the end of our time. 
if anybody's interested in any follow-up questions, just shoot us an email and we'll uh, schedule some time for you to talk to uh, one of our speakers today. So again, thank you for joining us and have a great rest of the day.